Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm Peter Steinfeld. Today, I'm talking with Adam Korn, Director of Safety and Security and Training and Development at GoFundMe. Adam has more than 20 years of experience in intelligence, security, and defense training, and has served in organizations spanning federal agencies to tech giants. In this episode, Adam shares his workplace security training blueprint, plus tips for improving both learning and development at any organization. Let's listen in. Hey, Adam, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, Peter, great to see you. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So starting at the highest level, what are some of the core components of building effective workplace security training? At the highest level, first things first, make it fun. You make it fun and interesting. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. The first and foremost is figure out a way to make the onboarding, the training and development fun. And when I say those three things, the three pillars, the three critical pillars of having an effective you know, onboarding training development program. You got to make sure that they're all kind of themed. So it's not people just don't call it what they are. Brand it, make it interesting and fun and thought provoking. So if you have the first pillar being onboarding, maybe you call it launching pad and that sort of thing and, and have a theme there where you can intertwine stories and all the onboarding material that you give your employees. Same thing with training. Maybe instead of just calling it the training program, you call it rocket ship. It's something that people sit in and takes them to another destination and then for the professional development program, which is a third pillar of the whole program, is professional development and maybe perhaps call that Galaxy Quest. And you know, we'll reach the heavens and the stars by building upon their knowledge and all the professional acumen. So I think that's essentially the biggest elements of the foundation, at least, of having a successful program. Can you have too much fun? This is serious stuff sometimes. So <laughs> are there limits that you should put in place? Yeah, you got to read the room, know your audience, know that at the end of the day, like maybe your executives, if you have a training just for them, they're busy people and they don't have time for too many hijinks and jokes. Or if the topic is serious, you know, say you're discussing something with workplace violence and you want to take, you know, there's no tasteful way to make that humorous. It's a you know, very, very tense subject. But for the most part, a lot of what we do in security is not tense. A lot of it is policy and a lot of its procedure and just best practices. So such as don't forget your badge. If you do forget your badge or lose it, make sure you report it. Don't tailgate. You can make most of security topics and emergency preparedness topics fun and engaging, interesting as possible. Well, what's your approach to instructional design overall? I use a variety of different adult learning theories. There's some really great ones there, I won't go into too much detail what they are because each one of them is probably a, a university course, you know, in themselves. But there's Malcolm Knowles's Six Assumptions of Adult Learners. There is Bloom's Taxonomy, which is a great way to build out your learning objectives to make sure that they are reasonable and clear. And then the last one is Addy. It's actually an instructional designing model that came out of the military after the Vietnam War. And it stands for Analyze, Design, develop, implement, and evaluate. And when I start to try to figure out what is the best teaching program for or instructive program for a company, I first run an analysis and I really figure out what exactly are the teaching and training needs of the organization. And I try to boil it down into what is the problem I'm trying to solve. And then I move over to the design phase. And the design phase is the solution. You know, the solution just might be various types of modalities of training 
or really onboarding people for success. And then I move on to development, whereas I build out the training module. And it could be any different modality or, or combination of modalities like e-learning modules and videos and interactive discussions. And then I implement it. And I really kind of see how it goes. And then I do some surveys and get some data and some analytics on how effective or ineffective or neutral the training was. And I evaluate it you know, very closely. And then I try to make another iteration through the analysis phase. So I repeat the cycle and then proving the training for the next iteration because training isn't a stagnant thing. It is a very cyclical nature throughout the entire year or five years or 10 years. As you think back over your career, have you seen any eye-opening things as you've gone through that process? Like, wow, I thought this would be great in theory and oh, that did not work. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, what I've noticed is that you have to be sensitive to the different types of learning styles. And it's very easy to mirror. You assume people see the world the way you see them. And I've gotten feedback recently, like a few of my trainings, like one of the trainings I love building out is cartoons. And that entertains me to no end. Then I got feedback saying, hey, you know, Adam, some of our people here like more text. They want more text training. They don't want to watch a video. They'll watch it, but they won't retain any of it. And sometimes it's really important. So they have to watch it over and over again. And what some of the learners were doing was writing it down like as they were watching the video and they were thinking to themselves, this would have been better as a text for me or this subject matter would have been better as text for me. So, you know, it's really understanding your audience and knowing that sometimes you're going to have to make training the same training module in different modalities. You might have to make a video followed by a discussion, followed by an e-learning module, followed by just a simple one pager. There's no problem with an organization making several different modalities of the same training as long as they're all updated and maintained the same exact way. No, that's a fantastic point. And you were just making me think about the trainings that I sit through. We all do working for organizations every year. You go through standard trainings. And for a long time, it was the person just speaking or you're watching a video. And I read really, really fast. So my preference is to have everything printed out and I can just scan through it in about one quarter of the time it takes someone to say it. So that's my preference. And you're right. You really have to think about that. So that's, that's an excellent point. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is how do you ensure that the program is delivered effectively? Because I can imagine that you come up with everything in theory, but actually rolling it out in reality could be quite a challenge sometimes. Well, you have to make sure that training is the solution you're really looking for. There's many times where since, you know, if you're the director of learning and development, you know, and I happen to be, you know, the director of safety and security, which is composed of lots of trainings, Sometimes we have an issue where a team in the company will come out to me and they'll say, look, we have a problem. We want training to fix it. And then I'll say, well, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And then they really can't articulate it. If they can't put it in one sentence, they really don't understand the problem yet. So as a part of my ADDIE process, I go through the analysis phase with them and I say, well, let's figure out the problem you're trying to solve. And then I ask them another question. I say, okay, now that we know what the problem is, can it be solved with training? Because sometimes they discover the problem they're trying to solve can't be solved with training. Maybe they hired the wrong people with the wrong skill sets for a particular operation. Or maybe they have really poor policies in place and people know what to do instinctually, but they don't want to deviate from policy. So maybe policies need to be updated and re rewritten. So it's amazing how often people will come to me with training because it's kind of like when your doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you medically, sometimes to buy time, they'll say, well, get some blood tests done. And they're doing that not because they need the data from the blood test. They're trying to buy time for like the situation to resolve itself. So I feel like sometimes when, say, a director of an apartment gets feedback from their 
executive team that they're falling short in some way. It's easy for them just to say, well, I have told training to fix it and training's working on it because it buys them weeks or sometimes a few days or a few weeks to sort of wait for the problem to either resolve itself or and they can also say, well, we're waiting on training and it promotes an inaction on their part. So sometimes you got to not let the requesters get away with that. You have to really kind of hold them accountable and that takes some conversation and a lot of trust building. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems like people oftentimes want to just give up immediately and transfer their problems to someone else (laughs) to solve. Yeah, and it's not even malicious. They're just busy. And and smart people delegate and take shortcuts all the time. And, and that's what smart, good business people do. So you can't, I never interpret it as people are trying to offload work on me. I think they're legitimately trying to solve a problem, but looking for you know the quickest fix imaginable. Mm. And sometimes the quickest fix isn't the best fix. Yeah, well, I like your approach to begin with the end in mind, really. Let's start from the end. What's that objective and what's the real problem? And then we can back into the right solution. Yeah, absolutely. And then baking in ROI. You asked me about like how to run an effective program. I would have noticed in most companies I worked for, there was no return on investment knowledge or dashboard of their training. And I think that's a big miss on a lot of training programs I've seen even at the, the most advanced companies in existence, some I've worked at. So I think that you have to make a program that really understands the return on investment and knows how to collect that data and run that regression analysis, run the analytics, run the metrics to figure out how effective or ineffective or neutral was my training. And you use that data along with anecdotal data to improve the next iteration of that training cycle. That's interesting. So as you're thinking through the program ahead of time, you kind of need to sit down and say, okay, here's the problem we're having. Here are the one, two, three, four, five, X number of manifestations of that problem. We've identified all that. Now let's create a training program for it. And now going forward, let's see if we're reducing the impact of one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. Provide an example, like just a very, very clear, easy example that everyone seems to understand is like, say you work for a company that has a campus and the campus is quite open and there's a laptop theft issue, meaning that organized teams are going in there to steal people's laptops you know, who are leaving them unattended because they are eating lunch or so on and so forth. And the requester comes to you and says, we have a laptop theft problem at our company. We want you to fix it with training. And you kind of say, okay, well, we need to make employees more aware. And let's figure out, letting them know the tactics that people use, adversaries use to steal laptops and what it does to the company and how you can be more vigilant with your laptop you know, while you're working anywhere. And then you provide that training and then you wait and you collect metrics. Has there been a reduction in laptop theft? You know, if there's been no reduction in laptop theft, that means your training was ineffective and you have to uh, make a better version of it. Yeah, that's great. Well, so let's say you have your perfect program, you think in theory, that's going to be great. And you're going to go through that iterative process, obviously. But tell me more about rollout and adoption. You talked about making it fun early on, but how do you get employees engaged and really bought into the program? That can always be tough. It can be. I find that the best way to do that is involve them as much as possible in the development of your program as you can. Um, not everyone's interested in training. A lot of companies treat it like check the box. So people have a bad feeling about it at times, or they just you know are kind of indifferent to it, or they just look at it as kind of a nuisance or just sort of something they have to do. So I think you need to identify people in the company who are interested in training, and there always are. Training is a fascinating psychological highly interesting concept. The fact that we can always learn is just, you know, what makes us quite remarkable as a species. 
So it's not hard to find people throughout the company who would be interested in being a part of a focus group and let them have a major voice in the way that you build and develop and deliver your program. And don't just make it one and done. Make it an ongoing thing. Make a focus group that meets once a quarter and you essentially do a dissertation on what your program is and how it's going. And you tell them as you're taking our training, we, you know, of course, you fill out surveys. But we want you to also take notes so we can discuss it of how we can you know, improve things for next time. So I think as long as you incorporate the company in your training program and the development and design and look and feel of it, you'll be a lot more successful. Yeah, I think people have a sense of ownership when they're involved. And, you know, when I think about training, I don't know if the right word's misnomer, but training is just the tip of the iceberg. It's really a process to get better. You learn a little bit during training. It might take a half an hour, an hour, whatever it is. But then you got to spend sometimes days, weeks, months with reinforcement to make sure people really do what they're supposed to, depending on the, you know, the nature of the situation. But that reinforcement is so critical as well. And if people buy into it, they're more willing to do that reinforcement down the road than just sit through a training class initially. Yeah, that's a very good point. Something you said that caught my ear was they really want that involvement. It's one of Malcolm Knowles's six principles is that people are really interested in process. And when you said process, it kind of made my ear perk up because that's what adults like to learn. They don't want to learn just the content. They don't want to hear, like, these are the four things I want you to learn today. And a lot of adults really want to learn the process of the way something's developed or the process of getting something done. And that is more interesting to a, a, an intellectual adult. So I think that, you know, when you bring them into the development of your training program, you let them know the process in which training is created. And people find that quite fascinating. And it also helps them respect the limitations that you might have. Yeah, it really engages the mind. And once people's mind is engaged, then they're really paying attention and they're learning. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, are there some common pitfalls in instructional design or program deployment in general that organizations should watch out for, things you've experienced in the past? Yeah, I think that sometimes training can be tedious. It's like an annual compliance and it can be very lengthy. And you're trying to figure out a way to make it interesting. But I think a big pitfall is they make trainings too long. I think that people, typically what I'm finding in all the companies I work for, is that people really are kind of willing to give you a half hour. If you make a meeting like longer than a half hour, I've noticed that people are a little more disengaged after that 30-minute mark. And I don't know if, I have no science to back that up, but just in, in my observations. It's a sitcom. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that a lot of training programs, they don't get creative with making it fun and interesting where they can, is because the truth is comedy is hard. Storytelling is difficult. A big part of a learning experience is the same thing as like when you meet someone that you like, typically you like them for two reasons. You like the way that they made you feel and you remember a story that they told. And so you have to make sure in any training you create that there is an ultimate feeling that you attached to that training, whether it be upbeat or serious or this is just the best practice for our community. And there also has to be kind of a story that you incorporate. I noticed that the big pitfall that a lot of companies fall into with their training is their, their trainings are bland and they leave no emotion. They tell no story. There's no branding or no concept. It's just, here's the title of the training and it's cut and dry. And then it just touches on that subject matter and people just sort of forget about it. So I think that if you focus on really making sure your training has a theme, and a story and a feeling, it'll be more effective. And that's where I see most companies falling short. 
Yeah, I mean, I can think back to trainings I've had that were super memorable because the presenter did it in such a way that they really engaged us with a story and then there was a lesson to learn after that. And you really remember that versus just raw facts. But your point about time, I think, is really crucial. I think one thing trainers often have a problem with, either if they're the subject matter expert or they're getting input from other subject matter experts, is the dreaded curse of knowledge. We know as the subject matter expert everything about this topic and we're trying to cram in as much as we can. And then we tend to extend it from 30 minutes to 60 minutes to 90 minutes and think people are going to retain it and understand it just like we do after all of our years of training and experience. It's not the case. So how do you instruct someone who's trying to design this stuff to say, cut it down, crawl, walk, run, 30 minutes? What kind of advice do you offer there? The best way I advise my instructional designers is to switch up the modalities as much as possible you know, within any sort of learning experience. So I don't want it to be just one stagnant, you know, here's an e-learning module, and it's just a series of things you click through, get to the end. I want it to be mixed with the e-learning module, but embedded in the e-learning module, there'll be videos and then screenshots of conversations that really took place because that's what's really impactful. An example would be like if people are reaching out to your employees over LinkedIn and they're doing social engineering and they're saying things like, hey, you failed to pay this invoice. Now, please send, you know, wire this money here now. This is an outrage. And someone sends that to you on LinkedIn. It's your first day working at the company and it's a little fishy. And so that new employee will send that screenshot to security, which is the other team that I, I manage. And I'll look at that and I'll embed that in the training module. And therefore you tell a story about there once was a person that started working at this company and next thing you know, they became very popular on you know, LinkedIn, even though it was their first week and lots of requests were being made about what they should do and where they should send the company's money and resources. And you tell that story in a, in a fun way, people find it relatable. And then naturally, since like you're telling about it, they start seeing it. They go, well, I haven't checked my LinkedIn in like six months. Let me take a look at that. And they go, whoa, I have like five of these weird requests. And that's kind of interesting. No, that's, that's a great idea. Can you provide maybe some other examples of training programs and how they achieve success at GoFundMe? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one program I'm really proud of, we realize that people like learning very critically important things, but in very small bite sizes. So we made something called the hybrid high five because most of our workforce is hybrid. They're working from home, they're working in various other locations, they're traveling for work. And so in the hybrid high five, we try to put in like the best practices. And it literally has a, a logo of a hand giving a high five. And each finger is a point of things that will help make them more effective and efficient while being a hybrid employee, such as proper Slack etiquette. When should a Slack message actually not be a Slack message? And when should it be an email? Is it okay for your direct reports to turn off their camera during meetings? Like, how should you feel about that? What's the company's stance on that? There's so many different little details that we give. And if we, and there's a regularity to it. So we give a hybrid high five every month. And they might not be thrilled about like a huge training experience, but if they have one visual and it's this logo of a hand with five points that will help them be more effective and efficient at work, and they can click on each one of the fingers and then a drop down that explains what the tip is. People are finding that immensely helpful and it's been a very successful program. No, that's great. And also the five kind of limits the trainer to five points. You got to think, what is the most important? You're not going to have room for six or 15 or 20. It's like, what are the five most critical things? Yeah, it really, it makes you really think very carefully because you're like, what I'm saying has to be impactful because I only have this very short vessel in which to teach these five things. So it, it puts a lot more pressure on the instructional designer, but um, the learners really appreciate it a great deal. 
Do you have any thoughts or tips for trainers in particular? Like what kind of characteristics make for a good trainer depending on the situation? Since we're talking about the three pillars of a L&D program, it's really OTD, so onboarding, training, and development. I realized that ideally you want to hire instructional designers for all three roles. So people who are used to understanding how to work a learning management system, understand the principles of adult learning theory and how to apply them, and understanding the customer service nature of a good learning and development program. But you know, the personality you might want for an onboarding team, and this is probably you know, not a surprising, but someone who's just extremely high energy, very positive, a bit of a show person. They really like to kind of ham it up and get people really excited to be there. If they drone on or they just sort of seem like they're a technocrat, the new hires will not be excited and they'll kind of disengage or be on their phone like during NHO and not be too into it. So you want to find someone who you know is really positive and upbeat, but also someone who has a really great opinion of the company. Uh, and, and companies, everyone has, you know, it's a community like any other and people have their various opinions. So if the onboarder, it seems like they have a negative view of the company, that's going to come through even if they don't say anything. So you got to like, find someone who really likes the company and someone who's kind of upbeat and positive and really loves to be an extrovert. For the training program, I think that it could be more of someone who is just really good at understanding how to take information from teams to figure out what should the learning objectives be and really savvy with all the software in terms of really producing and creating and cutting down the lead time it takes to build training. Like They've gotten so good at the software and in taking the information that they're able to build training experiences rather rapidly because that's how organizations you know, move these days. And then the professional development person should really be someone who has a little more seasoned in terms of like their knowledge of the directions that careers grow. And they're very interested in like people operations. They're very knowledgeable about the company's career ladders. They really kind of understand the various things that like managers and executives may want to learn about, such as like contract negotiation that are highly specialized, something that will serve them. So I look at with professional development is things you can take with you even after you leave the company, whereas training is more focused on what you need to do to be an excellent performer in the company. And of course, with like professional development, they can apply those things in their current role, but I want them to be so important and interesting that they know by going through that experience, it's something they could take with them to their next role if they're not retiring. <laughs> right. What about bringing people in from the outside versus using inside talent? When is it appropriate to do one or the other? I think it all depends on people's skill sets. You might have people who know a lot about the company, but I really think it's important to find people who are instructional designers, who have some certifications, or they've done it a long time, or they've gotten some sort of formal training at some point in their career on how to be an instructional designer. It is a unique part of the brain, and it takes a great deal of sensitivity as well and understanding, and it takes such a high level of customer service work that sometimes you could find that internally, and sometimes you can't. And for the most part, I'm a big fan of mostly making trainings as internal as possible. But every once in a while, you have subject matter where you just you realize you're not being forthright with the fact that you don't really know what you're talking about, and it gets you know a little bit more complicated. Something like DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. You know, the best DEI people that I've worked with in the past, which has been fantastic, they've admitted that they're not an expert in DEIB, but they are figuring it out like everyone else. And it does take a great deal of, of sensitivity. And you have to be quite humble in teaching subjects that 
relate to DEIB. So if you don't have that internally, then you have to go externally to bring that in. Luckily, where I currently work, we have a fantastic director of DEIB, and he's been instrumental in the development of my program. We run everything by him, and he's more than thrilled to look at things with a critical eye. He's asked me such great questions in the past. I made a great training that I was really proud of. And he said, hey, Adam, great training, but what if you're hearing impaired? And I said, huh, you know, mm. I didn't think about that. Let me close caption everything in there. So it's like, it just, it's easy to have blind spots. So when you're not the expert on something, it's important not to be shy and, and reach out for help. And when you're bringing someone in from the outside, is it a good idea for you to spend a little time up front with them to share the company culture and some of your expectations and what they can maybe expect when they're talking to this group versus that group? Give them a little bit of inside baseball. Yeah, you want to you know, make things as easy for them as possible, like offer to build their slide deck for them. And anything that they are going to show, make sure that you get it vetted. Make sure you look at it, make sure that your director of DEIB looks at it, and say if it's something like on cybersecurity, make sure that your CISO looks at it to make sure it jives with, with their program. You don't want employees to be confused. So you have to make sure everything is well vetted before anyone sees anything. That is an excellent point. Well, do you have any other memorable experiences around training that are maybe outside your current role that you could share? Something that kind of was impactful for me that I think it might be interesting to other people. When I first got involved in adult training, I was an acting professor at National Defense University, which is at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. And I was you know, working at a government agency and they detailed me to teach there for two years. And while they're teaching me there, that's where I learned about how to be an instructional designer and building theories, working off really good theories and incorporating it into everything you're training and learning to people who are hungry for knowledge and, and they're going to use it in the field. So you have to get it right. But I wasn't a very confident teacher when I first started. And I'll tell you what made me confident was, I remember it was before I was going to teach my first class to a bunch of military officers. They were lieutenant colonels and above. And I had my entire class, my presentation, and I had notes with me. And I first gave it to my supervisor before anyone else saw it. I said, let me go through the entire class with you. It's like two hours. And let me get some feedback from you. And I, I did it. And I did a great job, but I was carrying notes the whole time. And he said, hey, Adam, you know, in, in all my education, I've never seen a professor carry notes around. They just, they know the material and then they, they speak from the heart. And I didn't feel confident in that. And he said, he said you know, I, when you teach this class tomorrow, I don't want you bringing your notes. I just didn't have like the confidence yet. So I brought in my notes anyway. And he was sitting in the back of the classroom. And I remember like, I started like saying, hey, introduce myself to the class who I've never met before. And I was about to jump into subject matter. And he stood up and he said, hey, mind if I uh, pause class for a sec? And he grabbed my notes out of my hand and he just walked out of the classroom. And so, you know, wow. I didn't have a crutch anymore. But it's like, you know, it's a feel good story because... I ended up teaching the class just fine. And, and like, you know, it's kind of like one of those after school specials that turns out I had the knowledge all along. But that was something that I realized that how much I really enjoyed teaching and how exhilarating it can be and how interesting it can be. So if your other listeners are having reservations about building an effective program, and there might be a variety of reasons for that, I would say just jump into the deep end with both feet and you'll find your teaching voice. You just got to be confident and really learn from people who are excellent teachers and ask them for advice. They're always happy to give it. That's great. Great story. Great feedback. And it seems like when you get in front of people, it should be more like a conversation that you're having with them, not like you're just spraying words at them. And that can only come from the heart. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with adults. They don't want to be lectured. They want, to, you know, they want you to relate things to their experience. They want you to give them knowledge that they can use today 
They want to play a part in the development of your learning objectives. So sometimes you make it a communal thing. As you're teaching in class, you said, based off this subject matter, what do you think our learning objectives should be today? And then you write them up on the board when you're having a class facilitation. I know that's kind of old school, but that's something I found particularly helpful. Yeah, that's ownership right there. Well, as we start to wrap up, do you have any final thoughts or advice for our listeners on how to improve security training or just safety in general at their organizations? Anything you're really passionate about? Yeah, I would say truly invest in onboarding training and development. And when it comes to safety and security, uh, it's really going to benefit the organization. I really want to also reiterate how important it is in all of your training and learning experiences. Incorporate two major elements. One is a feeling an emotion that you want your learners to have while they're going through the experience, because that will help them remember it, and it will determine whether they liked it or disliked it. And the other thing you want to incorporate is a story. If you could figure out a way to incorporate the story, people will remember stories more than they'll remember content. So it always pays to really put the work up front and bake in your emotion, your feeling, and your story in every training experience that you deliver. I love that advice. Bury the content in the feeling in the story. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Adam, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to meet you. Likewise. To learn more about Adam and his work with GoFundMe, click the links in the show notes. Tune in next week for more expert advice to help you protect your business and people. For video highlights from today's episode, just search for Alert Media on YouTube. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.